Well, good morning. It is a joy to be with you this morning and to have been with you last night. I bring you greetings from Grace Baptist Church in Cape Coral, Florida. We consider ourselves a sister church with this congregation and have for many years prayed for you, rejoiced with you, fought together spiritual battles with you, and we are delighted to have this type of affectionate relationship with you. And they are praying for us today. They prayed for this weekend and are rejoicing in the good things that God has done in this congregation over the course of the last 43 years. Last night was a, a wonderful celebration. I don't think I have ever been a part of an event of that nature that has gone as well or has been more God-glorifying. And I'm so happy to have had the occasion to be here for that. Of course, most of the focus was on Pastor Ted's tenure here for the last 43 years and what God has done through him in the life of this church. But there was a sub-theme that kept emerging through all the stories. I loved to hear the stories about some of what God has done here. But that that sub-theme that kept emerging is that the life of a pastor is inextricably interwoven with the life of a congregation. And, And it has to be that way. For any church that is committed to the Word of God. Because the Word of God is that which establishes the relationship. Pastors don't appoint themselves. Churches just don't self-exist. But we are what we are and we live the way we live because this is what God's Word instructs us to be and do. So I say that it is inevitable that a pastor's life will be inextricably interwoven with the life of the congregation. Now that's true for every congregation that is conscientiously submissive to the Word of God. Because the Word of God says a lot about that relationship between pastor and people. We've had read for us already this morning one such passage, and there are multitudes of passages like that. So if you are going to be a church under the authority, submissive to the authority of God's Word, then inevitably you're going to see more of these experiences that can be talked about, stories that will be told about how God has worked in and through pastors and church as they live together seeking to do God's will. Your pastors have pledged themselves under the authority of God's Word to serve you and to relate to you in specific ways. Again, not ways of their own choosing, but ways that are spelled out for them according to God's own Word. In the Scripture, God calls your pastors to shepherd your souls, to watch out for your spiritual welfare, to lead you and teach you the things of God as revealed in His Word, to feed you that Word so that you will become increasingly equipped to live wholeheartedly for Him, no matter what your vocation might be, in all of your spheres of influence. They're called to help protect you, to guard you against those soul-destroying ideas that are current in the world and sometimes find their ways into churches. They're called upon to help you be alert to false teachers and people who maybe even inadvertently 
would take you away from the paths of God. If you're a member of this church, then you have pledged yourself to be watched over by your pastors, to recognize them as those whom God has given you to care for you and lead you according to his word. You've committed yourself to be submissive to their biblical counsel as they try to guide you in paths of joy and holiness and seek to admonish you according to Scripture. And as I said, all of these things in these various aspects of the relationship between pastor and people are spelled out to us in God's Word. And we could spend a lot of time just reading Scriptures that talk about pastors' responsibilities to churches and churches' responsibilities to their leaders. But just for example, God says in Acts 20, 28, this to pastors specifically. Paul says it to the elders at Ephesus, and it applies to all pastors. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. That is God's word to pastors, your pastors as they think about this church. Or 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter identifies himself as an elder, and he says to his fellow elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So there are many such texts in Scripture that instruct pastors specifically about how they are to relate to the churches they serve. And then there are scriptures that speak specifically to church members about how church members are to relate to the pastors that Christ has given to them. For example, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. We've seen that today. We saw it last night. And in doing so, this church is following what this text says church members are to do. Or as was cited earlier in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be of no advantage to you. So because you are committed to the Word of God as a church, you give yourselves to this kind of relationship between pastor and people. But it's hard to maintain this kind of relationship. It's hard to cultivate it and to continue it. It's hard for church members, and it can be hard for church leaders as well. That's why we should regularly take time to remember what God says to us about the nature of this relationship. And being reminded of what he says, we should regularly encourage one another to fulfill the responsibilities he's laid upon us as pastor and people. So in light of this weekend and in light of the the afterglow, the celebration last night and still rejoicing and all that God's done here over the last four decades through one of your pastors, I thought it would be very appropriate for us to take the opportunity 
and zero in on this relationship. Really just one aspect of it, but in some ways a multifaceted aspect of it. What has God called you to be and do as a member of Heritage Baptist Church with respect to your pastors? And what has God called your pastors to be and do in fulfilling their responsibility as under-shepherds of Jesus Christ himself caring for you? Now, I recognize that there are some of you probably here today that are not members of this church. I don't want you to be put off by this message or to immediately begin to check out and think, well, this has nothing to do with me. If you are a member of another church, then it would be very easy for you to take the principles we look at from God's Word this morning and apply them to your own congregation, and I would hope that you would do that. If you're not a member of another church and are living in this area, then I would just simply admonish you to become a member of a church where Christ is Lord and the Word of God is authoritative. And just consider that being this church. If you're a Christian and you've kind of slipped into a way of living and thinking, well, church membership's not a big deal, I have Jesus after all, then I would admonish you even more so and say that you're not following Jesus if you think that way. Because Christ loves the church. He bled for the church. He cares for the church. And if you're indifferent in your relationship to a local church and think that you can have a healthy relationship to the head of the church, you're not thinking rightly. And you need some help to be challenged biblically to come back to what the Word says about honoring the head of the church by uniting with a local body of Christ so that you can follow Him the way that He's revealed in His Scripture that you should follow Him. It might be that you're not a member of a church simply because you aren't following Jesus. You're not trusting Jesus. And I know I speak in behalf of this whole congregation and and including the elders, that they're delighted you're here today. And what you need more than anything else is not to join a church. You need to be joined to Jesus. You need to come to think seriously about your own life, which probably you have if you've lived very long at all, and acknowledge that you're not the way you're supposed to be. Things in your life are not the way they're supposed to be. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's broken. And there's brokenness in your life, and there are faults in your life, and it's all because there is separation in your life from your Creator. You have sinned and fallen away from Him. But the good news is that God sent His Son into the world to rescue people like you. You've heard it said already in this service. That's why this church exists. It exists because that good news of salvation and reconciliation between God and people like us has been affected once and for all time through Jesus Christ. God gave up His own Son to come into the world to live the kind of life that you and I are obligated to live under His law that we do not live because we break His law and then to lay down His life on the cross to pay for the lawlessness of which we're guilty. And through faith in Jesus, by coming to Jesus Christ, calling Him Lord turning from your sin, acknowledging that you need what only He can provide, God will accept you. He'll receive you. You can be born again. You can have new life. You can come to know your Creator. You can become a follower of Jesus Christ. And that would be the hope and prayer of many who are gathered here with us this morning in worship.
Well, the passage that I want us to turn to today for our meditation is found near the end of the Bible. It's the third from last book in the Bible. It's called Third John, and I want to read just the first four verses of this little letter by the Apostle John. In Third John, the first four verses say this. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to, the, to your truth, as indeed you are working, walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. What I want us to see from this passage is that your faithfulness as a church member and your pastor's joy are woven together by God. Your faithfulness to the truth of God is woven together to your pastor's joy in God. God has so arranged the Christian life that your faithfulness, your spiritual prosperity, and your pastor's happiness are inextricably bound together. Again, we heard it from Hebrews 13, 17. Let me read it again. It says, obey those who rule over you, talking about pastors, be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Church leaders, pastors, have a responsibility to watch out for the souls of the members of the church to whom they've been given. And every pastor who believes the Bible and takes it seriously and remembers this verse, carries a sense of weightiness of the day that awaits when he will stand to give an account to God for how we have cared for the souls of the people to whom we have been entrusted. Pastors can do this job, according to this text, with either joy or with grief. It can be joyful. It can be grievous. And inevitably, throughout any course of a pastor's ministry, there will be times of both joy and grief. But see that church members have the responsibility to be submissively obedient to their church leaders as they lead them in the ways of God. What this passage says is that members can largely determine whether their church leaders fulfill their leadership responsibilities with joy or grief. Have you ever thought about that? How you live in a large part, will impact whether your pastors fulfill their pastoral responsibility with joy or with grief. That's what this passage says. And the admonition is that members of churches should so conduct themselves that their leaders can lead with joy. Because if you have unjoyful leaders, it will not be beneficial for you. Unhappy pastors are not good for congregations. And so for your own soul's welfare, for your own sake, this passage says, let your pastors do their work with joy, not with grief. So again, the relationship is quite clear, isn't it, between the joy of church leaders and the spiritual welfare of church members. God has woven together your faithfulness with your pastor's joy. Third John sees this relationship 
in exactly the same way that Hebrews 13, 17 does, only it views it from a little different perspective. Hebrews is concerned primarily with admonishing members of churches how they are to respond to their pastors. There, in that verse, church members are instructed to be submissive to their leaders for their own spiritual welfare. But here in 3 John, our text for this morning, John gives us a glimpse into his own pastor's heart in a more comprehensive way to show us how his joy is stirred up by the life of those whom he cares about and watches over. Now, we don't know who this letter is addressed to. That is, we don't know much about Gaius. Uh, He's a man who obviously was dear to the Apostle John. He was a friend five times in this little letter. John affirms his love for Gaius. John, who wrote the letter, is the Apostle John. He calls himself in this letter, he identifies himself as the elder, maybe referring to his office of overseer, but probably also at least included is the idea that he's now at the latter stages of his life, that he is older than most. He was a minister of the gospel of Jesus, Jesus Christ. He was a, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is a leader among the people of God. And when he writes this little letter, he gives us insight into the relationship between church leaders and church members, specifically what goes on in the heart of a church leader and what it is specifically that can cause a church leader's heart to just soar with joy. Well, what is the relationship between a pastor and his congregation as spelled out here in the Apostle John's words? One of the chief ways this relationship is characterized is as a family relationship. We see this throughout the New Testament. The church is called the household of God in Galatians chapter 6 verse 10. It's also called that in Ephesians 2.19. Christians regularly are referred to as brothers and sisters. In some way then, the pastors of a church relate to the members of a church in a a somewhat parental relationship. It's like a parental relationship. So John shows us that when he refers to his children. That's not a term of disrespect. That's a term of endearment from a pastor's heart who has served many years caring for others. Paul compares his pastoral ministry to that of both a mother and a father. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7, He says, but we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. There's a maternal aspect to pastoral ministry that is reflective of a mother's heart for her own children. In that same passage, Paul goes on then to shift and say that there's a paternal aspect to his ministry in the church. Verses 11 and 12 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you might walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Few relationships in life are as rich and life-giving as a healthy parent-child relationship. Parents ought to delight in their children, and they ought to sacrifice for their well-being. I mean, what is stronger than a mother's love or more comforting than a father's protection and encouragement? 
Those of you who have been blessed to have such parental relationships can be reminded of that. You can testify to the truth of that. In all these ways, church leaders relate to the members of the church as they watch out for the welfare of their souls and care for their souls. That's why John writes as he does about those under his care as children. There is children. And just as parents have hopes and desires for their children, so a pastor has aspirations for the members of his congregation. What are those aspirations? Well, look at verse 2. You'll see how John expresses them when he describes how he prays for them. He prays for Gaius that all may go well with you. The New King James renders it like this, that that you may prosper in all things. Christianity concerns all of life. Every area of our life is transformed when we come to know Jesus Christ is Lord. It has implications that extend to every detail of your thought life, of your emotional life, of your daily practical life. God has made us body and soul. And it is right to desire to see God prosper us body and soul. John says he prays for Gaius that he may be in good health. Evidently, Gaius had some illness. Maybe it was a chronic illness that John knew about. It's right to pray for the welfare, the well-being of those that we love as you have prayed this morning for that little child who's in the hospital in Louisville. That is right. But notice that John doesn't pray for Gaius' prosperity in a thoughtless way. But rather, he links his desire for Gaius' physical and material and emotional and financial prosperity to the prosperity of his soul. He wants to see him prosper in every way in proportion to his soul's prosperity. Do you see the little word as? You could say just as. Gaius was already prospering spiritually. Paul had heard about it from those who had come to tell him how Gaius had showed hospitality, how he had sent those who had gone out for the name from his house back into the ministry in a worthy way. Spiritually, he's doing well. And he says, just as you're doing well spiritually, I want you to do well physically in every way. And that's a proper way to pray. Because only a person who is prospering spiritually can adequately handle prosperity in other areas. It takes a steady hand to hold a full cup. And we've all seen the tragedies of what have happened, what has sometimes happened when people are given an abundance of blessings materially without spiritual blessing. Some of the greatest spiritual shipwrecks have been caused by health and by wealth. Because with health and wealth, though they are great blessings, come great temptations. Psalm 106 is one of those psalms that gives us a historical overview of God's dealing with his old covenant people. And in Psalm 106, the psalmist recounts a time when the people were led by Moses in the wilderness and they began to complain that they don't have it like they had it back in Egypt. Even though they were slaves, there was plenty of food and there was a variety of food. And so they began to complain and 
There's this sad verse in verse 15 that reflects what happened to them in their complaint. It says, God gave them what they asked for, but sent leanness of soul among them. He gave them material blessings, but with those material blessings, there was a loss spiritually. Material prosperity and spiritual poverty often are found together. Not necessarily, but sometimes, very often, we see that that's exactly what happens. Why is that? Well, Because when you are materially and physically prospering, the temptation is to begin subtly to forget just how dependent upon God you are. When your refrigerators and cupboards are full, do you really pray, give us this day our daily bread? God has given us an abundance of food. And we forget that it is only by His hand that we live. When I pray for the members of the church I serve, I regularly pray for their prosperity. I'm aware of some business ventures and some difficult situations and jobs and opportunities that they have. And I don't mind praying regularly, publicly, and and with them privately, that the Lord will prosper their labors. I think it's right for us to pray that for one another. We see this is exactly what John prays for with Gaius. But... More important than their financial or physical prosperity is the prosperity of their souls. And I would be praying down a curse upon them if I prayed that God would only bless them and prosper them physically. But it's as He prospers them spiritually, they will be able to handle the blessings of physical prosperity. Now let me ask you a question in light of what we find in our text, the way that John prays for Gaius and others. What would happen if God suddenly today began to prosper you financially, physically, to the degree that you are prospering spiritually? That's what John actually prays. Do you see it? Verse 2, he says this for Gaius. I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as, or just as, it goes well with your soul. So what would happen to you if God made your spiritual health the standard by which He blessed you physically, financially, in other ways? Well, I fear that there might be some in this room that would become deathly ill would see financial reversals. Because though you've prospered outwardly, your soul has been neglected. And you've not taken God at His word to see the abundance of provisions that He has given to us, not just for this life, but for all of eternity through His Son, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, your pastors in this church deeply long to see you prosper, to be blessed in every way. But I know that it is both grievous and frightening to them when they see you prospering financially, physically, while you're neglecting your soul. If they see you being so industrious in your job, with your hobbies, but being indifferent and formalistic in your spiritual life before God. 
faithful pastors want to see their church members prospering in every way, spiritually, and then in their physical lives. When this happens, then a church leader's heart cannot help but rejoice. We see this in verses 3 and 4. We 